so uh, these two guys this road one day, and they're standing there, and they're holding up these signs that say, turn back before it's too late. And all of a sudden, this guy in a fancy convertible drives by. You know it wasn't me, because it's a fancy convertible. Right? <laughs> it's a cheap convertible. This guy in this fancy convertible drives by, and looks at him, and he yells, you religious nuts! The one guy looks at his friend and he says, do you think we should change our signs to just say bridge out ahead? <laughs> well, last week, uh, we started at the beginning of the first missionary journey in the book of Acts. You got Paul and Barnabas, and they are called to go in a prayer meeting at the church in Antioch to go out and be sent out to spread the gospel. And so Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, they go out, they travel on a boat to the island of Cyprus, and they end up speaking uh, in the city of Paphos to the island's leader, Sergius Paulus, where they encounter this sort of weird dude, uh, this kind of charlatan prophet who claims to be the son of Jesus. He calls himself Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus. And um, this does not go well for him, because Paul calls him out and in the process strikes him blind, and Sergius Paulus and many other people come to know Christ in this process, and um, off they go. So, and we kind of took away from that last week that, first of all, uh, it was interesting how, how we, we should be praying for God to call more people to go out and serve him. We sort of tend to do it the opposite these days. People sort of self-select and they say, hey, I feel called. Whereas there, the church looked at Barnabas and in prayer and in fasting and said, hey, you are called to go. And so we should be praying that more people are called to serve and go out with the gospel so the gospel can go to all peoples. Secondly, we looked um, at four tests that we can use to spot false teachers like this guy bar Jesus. And of course, we live in a time where there's plenty of false teachers out there. So knowing how to spot them is a good thing. Uh, so today, as we move on in chapter 13 of Acts, uh, we are going to pick up the story. The context for this week is given to us in the first two verses as Paul and company leave Cyprus. Acts 13, starting at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, it's a short sail from Paphos to the southern coast of Asia Minor, or as we call it today, Turkey, where they landed at the port of Perga. So we have our map here. So they're here in Paphos at the end of last week with Sergius Paulus and, and the Bar Jesus guy. And they jump on a ship and they go this way here, Perga, which is in this province, Pamphylia, which is south of Galatia. Um, but this is, this is what we would call this whole area. We, they called it Asia Minor then. We would call it Turkey now. And so they start out here in Perga. And then they're going to travel inland from there. Okay? And so you see they go inland up here this way. These are mountains right here. And they go to another town called Antioch. This one they call Obsidian Antioch, so that we can differentiate it from 
to Antioch in Syria, where they started from. Now Luke doesn't tell us much about their travels or why they headed right for Antioch. Some scholars suggest that Sergius Paulus had contacts or family in that region, and so was sending arrangements with them so that they would be taken care of there. Because you know, Paul and them, they kind of traveled on whatever arrangements they could get as they went along. So maybe Sergius Paulus said, hey, I got some family up there in Antioch. Why don't you head on up there and maybe go talk to them? They'll put you up and, you know, put on some food for you, and, you know, tacos or whatever. Oh, that's <laughs> Another theory that some scholars hold to is that Paul was ill. He mentions in Galatians 4.13 that he first came to preach to the Galatians because of an illness. Now you saw on that map, Galatia was just kind of right up there in that area, just past Antioch. Now since city in Antioch is 3,600 feet higher than sea level, it is possible that Paul thought maybe the drier mountain air would help him get away from the warm, humid coast and help him with whatever was wrong with him. How will it say? Who don't know? Maybe all those scholars are right. Maybe they're all wrong. Who knows? But for whatever reason, they head up into the mountains to Antioch. We do know that John Mark left them and headed back to Jerusalem. Now again, we don't know why he left, and it's kind of we could speculate. I mean, I, I was reading a bunch of commentaries, and it was interesting to me how, how every commentator had about three speculations and no real evidence to back any of them up. Because the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't tell us why John Mark left. Whatever the reason was, we pointed out last week that it was serious enough that it eventually causes Paul and Barnabas to split up in chapter 15 when Barnabas again wants to take John Mark with them. So something severe happens. John Mark leaves them. And Paul and Barnabas continue on, and Paul never wants to work with John Mark again. So they get to the mountains. It's about an 80-mile trip, rough roads, notorious kind of for bandits and thieves. It was a pretty rough area. And uh, they end up, as was their practice, in the synagogue in the city of Antioch. And what I love about this sermon that Paul's going to give is that it, it gives us a clear explanation of something I brought up last week, and that is why we need the Old Testament. Verse 15. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, because remember there would have been Gentiles who also followed the God of Israel there. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And it was with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them the land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. 
Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So it was customary when visiting rabbis would be come to a synagogue that they would be given a chance to speak at the meeting. And Paul's qualifications would have been well known, and, and of course they would have been known he'd come from far away, so they'd have been from Jerusalem, so they'd have been happy to have him. And much like Stephen's sermon prior to his martyrdom, Paul begins by connecting Jesus to the promises of God and the history of Israel. He doesn't launch in, if you notice, right away by going, ah, Jesus rose from the dead, he's the Savior, da 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 He connects them, he connects Jesus back to these promises. You'll remember last week that I met, I was explaining about false teachers and about a certain preacher, very famous preacher, whose last name is the same as a brand of black and yellow tools, who says that Christians should not waste their time, this is a quote, reading the Old Testament. Even though it doesn't happen to be two-thirds of God's word, they shouldn't waste their time reading the Old Testament. What we see here in Paul's sermon, the first one of his that we have recorded in Acts, is precisely the opposite of that. It is the Old Testament that sets the stage and in fact explains why things had to happen with Jesus as they did to provide both justification for him as both Messiah and Savior. Look at verse 23. Did we leave that up there, Mary, or can we go back to verse 23? Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, here we go. There we go. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel Savior Jesus as he promised, right? Next, and then he goes on about David, right? He's going to connect Jesus to the, as a promised descendant of David, right? He talks about David. 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 29, God established a covenant with David that would see his kingdom become an everlasting kingdom one of his descendants on the throne forever. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, which will get full fulfillment, complete fulfillment of when Jesus returns and sets up his throne in Jerusalem someday. But he's the fulfillment of this promise to David. God said there'll be a descendant of David that'll come someday. Jesus is that descendant. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah as promised to David. You wouldn't know that if you didn't read the Old Testament. Verse 26, Paul connects through the family of Abraham as the ones through whom salvation is promised. He connects Abraham and salvation in the Jews. Now, if you go really far back in the Old Testament, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, he promises him three things. Comes to Abraham, right? He says, look, I'm going to give you land, the land of Israel. 
I'm going to make you a great nation, right? Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the heaven and the sands on the seashores. Lots of things. Remember, Abraham didn't even have a son at this point. He'd been married to his wife for 60 years, didn't have a kid. Boy, he's 60 years old. I guess they hadn't been married for 60 years. So you got married, you know, arranged marriage. Okay, you get the point. And finally, the biggest part of this promise is that all the nations of the world, all the peoples of the world, all the families there would be blessed through Abraham, his descendants. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. It's through salvation in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles, all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, can partake in the blessing of Abraham, both to be blessed with salvation and to be a blessing to others. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't read the Old Testament. You notice I got a little thing in my craw about this? Sorry. Verse 27, Paul reflects on how Jesus' rejection by the religious authorities and their crucifixion of the Savior was ultimately necessary to fulfill prophecy. For Jesus to become the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, for example, he has to die. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. By his wounds, we are healed. Psalm 22 literally predicts, if you go back and you read Psalm 22, it literally says that his hands and feet will be pierced. It literally says that his garments will be gambled for by the ones who pierced him. It literally tells you that the onlookers would sneer at him and claim that if he trusted God, he should call on the Lord to save him, which is exactly what they say as they sneer at Jesus on the cross. This is all in the Old Testament. It's all written a thousand years before Jesus is crucified. This and more, all predicted in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in Jesus. Now, Paul obviously starts with the Old Testament because of his Jewish audience. But in his sermon, we can see that the essential truths about Jesus are found, laid out in the Old Testament, and it is the foundation for everything we have in Christ, as well as understanding what will come in the future that has yet to be fulfilled. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't ever read the Old Testament. In fact, Paul is going to use the Old Testament to further prove that Jesus is Savior and Messiah by proving the centrality of the resurrection from the Old Testament. Let's go on. Verse 32. And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the one fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep, that's Paul's nice way of saying, died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. That's Paul's nice way of saying, his body rotted more. But he who God raised up did not see corruption. So Paul's argument goes something like this. Once again, based on David 
and the irrevocable and everlasting covenant made with David. Jesus' resurrection shows he is the promised Messiah. David died. But the Old Testament promises that God's Holy One will not see corruption. Since Jesus rose from the dead, and he's the descendant of David who will not see corruption. Therefore, he's the Messiah, and the one in whom all the promises of the Old Testament come to fruition. David died, his body rotted. But God said there's going to be a Holy One who's not going to, his body's not going to rot. The only way for that to happen is for him to have risen from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, therefore he is the promised descendant of David, therefore he's the Messiah. Paul's making a case that at the center of Jesus' work, even in through the Old Testament, is the resurrection. The resurrection is the central tenet of the Christian faith. Without the bodily resurrection, you got nothing. Zero said nothing. Look at what 1 Corinthians 15 says, starting verse 13. Paul, this is Paul again. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is just making kind of what he said back in the sermon in Acts explicit in this passage. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're doomed. Not only are we liars for preaching the gospel, claiming he raised from the dead, he didn't rise from the dead. But if Jesus did not rise, then he is still dead. Which means sin and death have not been defeated, but in fact still reign. Which means then when you die, guess what? Food for worms. Someday somebody will be fishing. And that worm will be eating you. That's it. So look, it's Marissa on the hook. Food for worms. Right? So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that would mean that none of us are going to rise from the dead either. And sin and death would still reign. But since Christ has been raised from the dead, sin and death are defeated. And we have a sure hope that we too can look forward to being physically raised from the dead someday and living forever with him. So it's on these truths about Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, showing he is Savior and Messiah, and on his resurrection from the dead, that Paul then gives his listeners a promise and a warning. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything with which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. 
For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So Paul says to his audience, he proclaims to them forgiveness for their sins, that it comes through Jesus. Which means they are freed then from the curse of sin in the law. The law of Moses was powerless to save, but it was very powerful in showing how sinful we are. But in Jesus, the law is fulfilled, and all who believe are freed from its curse, both Jews under the law and Gentiles who don't even have a law. But then he warns them not to become the living fulfillment of the prophet Habakkuk, whom he quotes in warning them not to be scoffers at the marvelous work of God in Christ. That's where that little prophecy that he quotes comes from. It comes from Habakkuk 1.5. In light of how Paul earlier pointed out, remember, that it was the religious authorities in Jerusalem that their lack of understanding of the prophets that led them to condemn Jesus in the first place, which was really then just them fulfilling prophecy. Paul was like the guys with the signs with the bridges out. He's telling them to turn back. He's saying, don't go down that road where you ignore the truth of who Jesus is, like the religious authorities in Jerusalem did. Don't be a scoffer. God's doing an amazing thing. Don't be like those who couldn't see Jesus for who he really is, but believe in Jesus and be forgiven and receive eternal life. That's his gospel message. And you know what? It gets a good initial reception. But we're going to see very quickly how things play out. None of which is a surprise because it's God's plan all along for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Last ten verses of this chapter. As they went out, the people begged that these things might told them and be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Isn't it interesting, before I read on, how they end up doing exactly what Paul warned them not to do. Don't fulfill Habakkuk 1.5. What are they doing? Exactly what Paul told them not to do. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So at first, after the first synagogue meeting, the Jews and the Gentiles, they received the message of the gospel with joy. But it quickly becomes evident that many of the Jews are not on board with this idea of God extending grace to the Gentiles. They don't like it when everybody else shows up. See, it's kind of funny. Now, you know, I'm the kind of guy, I mean, if, 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 I, if I was, you know, suddenly magically, I'm going to tell you a story that's in the notes, okay? I'm teaching perspective Saturday night. 
Either the story has making some sort of some offense. I'm teaching perspectives uh, Monday night in Des Moines. And I get done with the first hour of teaching, talking about the kingdom of God. And this young guy comes up to me, very nice young man. And he looks at me and he goes, and, and he looked the part even, right? I mean, he was, his hair was completely bleached white.
let us all be sure that we have turned to the Savior and let us be willing to take that message of hope to all who listen to every nation tribe and tongue. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word so that we can understand all these incredible truths about the Savior. That the Savior was not an afterthought. It wasn't like Jesus' coming was plan B or that salvation to the Gentiles was, was something that was going to come later. But it was your plan through the people of Israel and through the descendants of David and through the covenants and everything that you have put together culminating in Jesus' death and resurrection. And then ultimately, fully, completely fulfilled when he returns again. And so Father, I pray this morning that every person in this room is 100% committed to Jesus in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. And that we are 100% committed to taking that message 